Diamond K Talk YA now presents King's Cage Part 1 from the Red Queen series by Victoria Aviard. everyone to another episode of M&K Talk YA. I'm Katie Bradford. And I'm Marissa Snyder. And this is our podcast where we talk about young adult fiction. And this week we read the first half of King's Cage, which is the third book in the, I forgot the name of the series now, Red Queen? No, Red mm-hmm. Crown? Yeah. Red, Red Queen? Queen. Red Queen. <laughs> <laughs> and the Red Queen series by Victoria Aviard. There are a lot of of YA books that have red, crown, or queen in them. So, yeah. Yeah. It's not easy keeping them straight. I was trying to add it to my Goodreads the other day, and I put in King's Crown. That's, yeah, that's what I, and I was like, why is this book not showing up? I know it's really popular. And then I, like, glanced up, and I was like, oh, because that's not what it's called. <laughs> ah. And the last book is called War Storm. Yep. Um, and, and, then, and then we'll be done with the quadrology. And I got a text from you, so I know that you're back into it again. Is that what your text indicated? Yeah. So I was nervous because we were going to record on Monday, and I hadn't started it on Thursday. I hadn't started it, and I was like, oh, no, on Friday I hadn't started it. And I was like, oh, crap, I only have, like, three days to read this book. I read it in a day. I read up to whatever. Oh, we read up to Chapter 16, just so everyone knows. Wait, I think I read up to chapter 17. Whoops. Oh, wait, maybe I did too. Hold on. <laughs> Hold on. Let me get it. Yes, I read up to chapter 17. <laughs> okay, just checking. I didn't read chapter 17, but I read up to chapter yes, 17. Yes, okay, same. <laughs> I was like, I'm glad you said that first before I like spoiled chapter 16. <laughs> okay, we're on the same page. Oh, man. Literally. <laughs> Life is hard. Podcasting is harder than it looks, guys. <laughs> we're good, we're good. Yeah, but it was funny because I know the second book you were you loved the first book, and then we're kind of feeling like the second book wasn't as exciting. So third book hooked you back in. Yes, I did not like the second book, but the third book I'm super into it, and I think the reason is because we have left the Scarlet Guard, which I know you said you're interested in the Scarlet Guard. I'm like bored to tears by the Scarlet Guard, but now we're back with Maven and we're back at court. And I'm loving yeah, it. Yeah, court is a interesting place to be, I think. And I think thinking about like the decisions Maven has to make, or I mean, like anyone in this like royal position has to make, is more interesting than what the Scarlet Guard is doing right now. I totally agree. And just like learning about like the complexity of people's personalities, and Maven is so fascinating to me because he's so fascinating. He's yeah. this horrible guy, but he also has this like twisted kind of obsession with Mare. And then what, the part that I really found fascinating was how you learn about his relationship with his mother, who is a whisper who can, like, control people's minds. And Mare wants to ask him, like, how much of what you did was you and how much of it was your mother controlling you? And we learned this whole backstory about how his mother basically has been controlling him since he was a child and, like, planting thoughts into his mind taking thoughts out of his mind 
and forcing yeah, him to just do things. Totally manipulating yeah. his emotions and his memories and yeah, all kinds of stuff. Like especially whenever um she was like trying to get him to walk when he was little and then he was afraid of her and she took his fear of her away just like took it out of his mind and then she also took away his nightmares and then his love for his father and he mentioned thomas who was his first friend in the war and she took like she took all of his love for these people out of his mind and so now i'm just like I feel bad for him almost. Like I have a little bit of sympathy because I'm because even he doesn't know which parts of his mind are his and which parts are his mother's making. Ooh. Yeah, and he was even saying about like the love of his father and his brother. He said he remembers that he loved them, but he does like the feeling is gone. Yeah. Like he has the memory of it, but not the emotion behind so it. Horrifying. And that's just and and having messed with all of that, it's like no wonder he has such a warped idea of what love is and like that his relationship sure. with Mare is so uh, weird <laughs> to say the yeah, least. Yeah, <laughs> but like you'd almost feel, at least I would feel that Mare killing his mother, killing Alara would have been a relief for him because he's finally free of her. And I think that's what Mare is trying to pull out of him. Like she kind of wants him to realize like, listen, you're free now. You don't have to keep doing what you're doing because the woman who is influencing you is gone. And so I think now she's trying to figure out like how much of who he is is his mother's making and how much of what he's doing is because he truly wants to. Yep. And I don't know the answer to that. I know. And I think it's just it's going to be interesting to unravel that and see because there's a part of her that still kind of wants him to be that boy that she thought he could be and wants him to kind of what you said be free of his mother and like embrace that side of himself but he can't at least not yet because of it it was like so much deeper than than we realized sort of (laughs) yeah she wasn't just making him do things she was like we said manipulating his feelings and thoughts and like he doesn't trust anybody now he sits in a silent stone throne Mm -hmm. so that no one can mess with his mind anymore and he's just so isolated yeah, and, and I think he's also partly trying to prove that he is a better ruler than Cal could be. Yeah, there's still that rivalry, kind of. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. And he's always saying, like, Cal can follow orders, but he can't make choices. And so now, which I agree with. Yeah. And now he's, like, determined to make these hard choices and just almost like he's picking a side and he's going with it because he doesn't want to appear weak or appear like he's indecisive like Cal is. Well, and it's just too bad because I think the two brothers are so different and they have, they both have good strengths that could help the kingdom and it's too bad that they couldn't just maintain a good relationship and work together and rule well. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Because it's true. Cal well, mother has some, down, that. yeah, <laughs> Cal has some uh, decision making issues and sort of doesn't like to rock the boat too much, even when he could or should. <laughs> Yeah, and then, oh, I was also, I as much as I don't like Maven as a love interest for Mare, obviously, like, there's too much going on there, but I do like him sometimes better than Cal, because Cal just disappoints me so much. Yeah. Like, whenever he launched, he was like, um, Cam- we, get, we get Cameron's perspective in this book, which is interesting, and she notices that he's communicating with someone outside of the Scarlet Guard, like, without their knowledge. And Cal was the one who um, planted Nanny at court and disguised her as um, Hal Cyrell. And then mm-hmm. when she's discovered, she commits suicide. And it was just like, he didn't run that by anyone. He just kind of like decided with Nanny that he was going to plant her and attempt to save Mare. And it just seemed so rash and like such a 
stupid move, and he got her killed. Yeah. So, like, Cal is disappointing me a lot. <laughs> Not that Maven's much better, Although, but... part of that was, like, what are the odds that there's a red who shows up and can read other reds' abilities the day Nanny shows up at court? <laughs> Very true. Yeah, I mean, that's just bad luck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm still interested to like, see yeah. more yeah. about Maven expressing his love for Mare in weird ways. Because you do get that he kind of does care in his own twisted way. Like, he tries to keep Samson from torturing her as long as possible. And she's in this, like, well, she was in this, like, super plush cell. Like, she had a lot of comfort. So he wasn't, you know, he was trying to treat her as well as he could. But it's still such a twisted way to love someone. Like, you don't keep people you love in cages. (laughs) So I'm interested to see more of that. Yeah, I agree. And they're both still trying to manipulate each other. Like, I'm also curious to see how Mare... Because she still has these sort of, like, moments of affection for him, too. Not quite... Maybe affection's too strong of a word. But, you know, I mean, she still, like, feels... She still sees parts of this boy that she loved. And obviously, it's much smaller than the hate and need to escape and everything else they've been through. But it's not a a black and white relationship at all. (laughs) It's very complicated. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if he'll ever be redeemed through the course of this book in any way. Or if he has to die. So we still haven't gotten to the thing that I spoiled for myself. Oh, no. <laughs> Should I give you a hint about what it's about? I don't know. What do you think? Is it? It's how did you spoil it, it already? <laughs> how did you spoil something from the last book and a half in the I first week we recorded? <laughs> I don't know. It's something uh, about Maven. <laughs> I think don't tell me. something about Maven. <laughs> don't tell me. Don't tell okay, me. Okay, no, I want it. Tell me when we find out that that was it, but don't tell me. Um, I have a question for you. Okay. So I love that we're getting more perspectives and we're seeing more more of the bad people. What What are your thoughts about Evangeline now? Well, I am so curious to see how she reacts now that she's not in line to be queen, and if she how much she knew that was coming or not. Yeah, and yeah, she, and, and it was kind of interesting. So at the end, Maven meets with the Lakeland King. And he says that he'll sign a treaty with him in exchange for Maven's hand in marriage to Iris, his daughter. And whenever he announces that, yep. Evangeline is strangely relieved. And I was thinking, because I think you brought it up the other day, um, we were talking, and you said, do you think Evangeline will ever go to the side of the Scarlet Guard? And I was just kind of curious, like, now that she's not going to be queen, do you think there's any way her loyalties will shift? I think her loyalties have to shift. But I don't know if that means Scarlet Guard necessarily or if I like I'm actually kind of curious about how this whole thing at court is playing out, too, because we've had three houses turn on Maven and mm-hmm. try to kill him, fail, leave court. Um, half of them are dead or tortured and half of them escaped or what, I, mean, I don't know about the actual numbers, but something like that. Um, and we found out that Evangeline's paramour was one of them. So I'm kind of curious. I'm just I'm I I don't know where her loyalties lie besides with herself and how that is going to play out going forward. I totally agree. But I think that if the Scarlet Guard and or Mare and or someone else has something to offer her, like I think she is in a position to change sides for sure if she thinks there's something in it for her. Yeah, I agree. And also we're just learning so much about her like I love that her friend Elaine is actually her lover, mm-hmm. and we didn't know that. And 
I suspected that actually. Did you? Oh, I didn't. Well, well I, I mean, guess... through through this first half of the book, not before this book. Oh, but okay. Before right. we, before it was actually revealed, I was like, they are very very close, and she's not really in a maven, so. It almost, um, but she wasn't a cow, it seemed. I don't know if she was in a cow or in a power. Maybe just for yeah. power, yeah. But I think it was cool that they set that up a little bit in the short stories we read where um, Cal's great-grandfather or whatever had this lover on the side and then also had this qu- the mm-hmm. queen. And so I thought it was kind of interesting that her story would have been parallel if she had married Maven. Um, but it's also messy since Elaine is engaged to Evangeline's brother. Yeah, that part I was kind of curious <laughs> a little bit more about, like, if that was everyone was just, like, aware and cool with it, or if that was, like... A scandal that she was keeping secret. A weird... Yeah. yeah I just I loved, like, the twists like that, because I was just like, that's unexpected, but it adds such a better depth to Evangeline's character, because before she was, like, you know, just this evil bad egg of a girl, and now it's kind of like, ooh, there's more to you, and I am interested to keep learning more about you and I'm actually kind of curious to see more of her relationship with her brother and father because I don't know how much she's using them or they're using her like I don't know if there's like true deep affection there or if some of it is they're using her for their own power by helping make her queen you know what I mean like I don't know yeah because we also saw that in one of the short stories um Cal's mom her family sort of just took advantage of her oh uh, Queen Corianne yeah yeah, they just wanted, you know, when she, any power that she was getting or any attention she was getting, they were sort of just soaking it up, but they didn't, besides her brother, didn't mm-hmm. really seem to actually have much of a true, like, loving, caring relationship with her. Good point. So. I really loved the, um, the coup d'etat that happened at the ball. Yeah. When those three houses rose up and tried to kill Maven. I love when Evangeline caught the bullet out of the air. Yeah. Or just like that would be a cool scene. That would be so cool to see. I was like, that's my scene. If it gets made into a movie, that's what I would most like to see. And even even the way they were fighting, because most of the fights we've seen so far have been either kind of new bloods versus silvers or Mm -hmm. reds versus silvers, a lot of it. So this is kind of the first time we've seen the powers versus each other in a true fight fight, not like in an arena. Silver versus silver. Yeah. So I was even when they were talking about like because it was the the ones who control the wind and the like ones who move really fast were two of the houses that defect. So they were like talking about how they were like throwing them around the room and the gusts of wind. It just it seems like it would have been really cool to like see that on screen. <laughs> and I was a, a little bit nervous for Maven when he gets shot because things did not look good for him for a minute there until that healer showed up. Yeah. And then we also met Prince Alexandra and the other. Prince Darius. Yeah, of Piedmont or something. Yeah, and that was strange because um, they were like questioning Mare about where's Prince Michael and Princess Carlotta. And I was like, who the heck are these people? And, and then... are they related to the Scarlet Guard or not? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. And then Alexandra gets shot during the coup d'etat. And so now I'm just kind of like, well, what was that all about? Like, will we ever find out who these Piedmont princes are and what they want? I don't know. I think we have to find out more about them because we're getting to know. And that's, I think, part of what I like about the court side of things is we are seeing more of these, the silver politics that are already in place that are going on. Because even with the Lakelands, we found out that in large part, this war was like a population control tactic that both sides were using. And it was relatively, quote unquote, easy to end the war. I mean, obviously, there's still some distrust and stuff, but it's not like they were really fighting over the land. That was horrifying whenever... I mean, I kind of suspected it a little bit 
that this war was just kind of a ruse to like there wasn't really a war it was just to control the red population like they kind of hinted at it a little bit i felt um Mm -hmm. but still seeing mare's reaction when she finds out and she's like oh my god you've been killing all of these red children for the sake of a war that isn't really doesn't really mean anything like you're both just decided to have a war to to control the population and it's been centuries like that's crazy i um that's actually kind of what I researched this week was different ways to control population control Ooh. laws or tactics or whatever that people have used. Oh, this is going dark. Okay, let's hear it. Yeah, I don't even know how I I started out looking at like prisoner of war swaps and then I don't know how I mm-hmm. got to this, but whatever. Um, so I read this one article that was kind of scary that said even World War Three could not stop the rising population. So if we had a war that claimed as many lives as the last two, we still are in trouble for how quickly our population is growing. And this article is really saying we need to focus more on sustainability and recycling and like other Mm -hmm. ways to not just population control, but other ways to like maintain our resources and keep them keep them growing. But uh, so the Second World War claimed between 50 million and 85 million lives oh my god and they're they think the first world war over 37 million people died and they did this these scientists used a computer model based on different demographic data in the world health organization and uh like different census bureaus and whatnot to investigate different population reduction scenarios and under current conditions based on fertility rates mortality rates average age of first child etc etc the global population so this is actually an article from 2014 i think it was um they said the 7 billion people we have in 2013 would grow to 10.4 billion by 2100 2100 what do we call that year 2100 that sounds good that's insane uh so and then they would so they did a bunch of different versions of the model where they would see how like climate change, war, reducing mortality or fertility rates, increasing the age of first child, etc., would affect mm-hmm. these predictions. And it was only like relatively slight. So a devastating global pandemic that killed two billion people was only projected to reduce population size to eight point four billion. And if we had six billion deaths it would bring it down to 5.1 billion, which is still, like, a crazy number of oh my people. God, I often think about, like, what the next thing will be that levels the population, which is so morbid of me, but, like, I can't help it. And I always think it's going to be something like the stand, where, like, this crazy virus gets unleashed that is resistant to all of our antibiotics, and, like, that's what it's going to be. And they, they, this is a kind of a crazy statistic. They say the global population has risen so fast over the past century that roughly 14% of all human beings that have ever existed are alive today. No. Isn't Holy that crazy? Sh- yeah. That's insane. Oh, my God. Well, yeah, because people are living so much longer. They're living so much longer, and they're, you know, I mean, just having more kids. And, I mean, you know, like, if you're having more than two kids, you're not just replacing your sure. increasing. And, and, yeah, if you look at mortality rates and all kinds of stuff. Chad and I were actually thinking, we were talking about this the other day because his grandparents last year celebrated their 75th wedding anniversary. Wow. And I was like, that is insane. That is such a long time to be married. And then we were thinking about it and I was like, I bet this, like our grandparents essentially are going to be the people who are married the longest. Like they're going to have the longest um, anniversaries because 
it was they it's still like got a, married young they got married young but they're also uh-huh. dying relatively you know mostly late living yeah. much longer living longer so it's gonna mm-hmm. it's like that weird sweet spot where it's like early marriage but late death that is gonna result in like the longest span of marriage we were just thinking about that that is crazy that's so true because yeah marriage rates have or marriage age has increased totally yeah um, so then I read 10 Astounding Population Laws from Around the World. Cool, okay. So these are kind of interesting because different countries have different population struggles. So even though as like globally we have an overpopulation issue, some countries have Underpopulation. trouble yeah, keeping their population. That's Italy's like that. So I think most people have probably heard about China's one-child policy, at least to some extent. Yeah. So in 1979, Chinese families were fined if they had more than one child an amount equal to three to ten times the household income. Oh, my God. And again, this is sort of uh, biased because wealthy families can usually afford to pay the fine or leave the country and skirt the rules different ways, whereas poor families will struggle. And because of cultural preferences for male children, girl babies are often aborted or abandoned, and the sex ratio, the population sex ratio, is now skewed 118 boys to 100 girls, which is also a problem. Yeah. Russia was facing falling birth rates, which is a different, you know, the other side of the coin. So in order Mm -hmm. to encourage couples to have more babies, Russia declared a day of conception on September 12th, 2007. (laughs) And they said anyone who has a baby on June 12th would be eligible to win a car or a fridge. (laughs) Oh, my God. Don't don't they do that in Japan, too? Not so much like a day of conception, but I read that um, employees globally throughout Japan just felt so overworked that they weren't they didn't take time to you know be with each other and have kids like they were so tired at the end of the day and so I read that a lot of companies were basically initiating this company-wide change where it was like they would let employees go home early on certain days and the understanding was like please go home spend time with your significant other and make children (laughs) because like the population was dropping because everyone no one was having sex Yeah, I didn't read about Japan specifically, but um, South Korea, they did something like that. Family day was the third Thursday of every month, Mm -hmm. and offices were shut down early to encourage family and baby-making time. Yeah. And this is one of my favorite uh, stories about trying to increase fertility rates. So in Singapore, uh, Mentos, the fresh baker, the breakfast, (laughs) like, joined up with authorities, I guess, and they came up with this campaign. So August 9th, 2012 was declared national night and in order to get patriotic this like ad they made this catchy rap song that went viral encouraging people that like the patriotic thing to do would be to get busy and there's like just some hilarious lines in this song i'll have to send it to you later but like oh my god singapore's population it needs some increasing so forget waving flags (laughs) august 9th we be freaking I'm a patriotic husband. You're my patriotic wife. Let's do our civic duty and manufacture life. Like, it's just like oh this. Oh, my God. And it's a Mentos commercial. It's just so funny. And <laughs> I didn't actually, I tried to find numbers on if it actually, like, had an impact or not. But it went viral. I mean, like, it was a big thing back in the day that this video was going around. That's um, so funny. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a huge turn on. <laughs> yeah. And then, I mean, a lot of, there's a lot of different, like, uh, financial incentives to, in both sides, to either encourage people to have children or have more children, or to encourage them to wait to have children or have fewer children. So, um, in Romania, in 1966, they were looking at a zero population growth, like, that 
that wow. was where they were at. So they said anyone who's married or single but childless at the age of 25 was subject to a tax of 10 to 20 percent of their income. A tax? Oh my goodness. So like if you, That's whether awful. or not you were married or not, if you didn't have a child by the time you were 25, you were tax. given That's horrific. Tax. Yeah. No. And there's a lot of stories too throughout these different countries of sterilization efforts Mm -hmm. a lot done without knowledge or consent of people oh shit like they go in for a routine routine procedure and end up sterile (gasps) yeah so i guess the government instituted a policy in uzbekistan that said after your second child you had to have forced sterilization and they were giving like doctors quotas to hit um so the doctors were more often they were having more c-section rate births because um, apparently the c-section rate raised to 80 percent during this time because forced sterilizations were easier to perform if you were already oh like goodness. in there doing a c-section that's awesome so yeah that's and i mean and we've seen that in various so whether or not it was secret and across the board or whether i mean you know different like eugenics programs mm-hmm. like even in the u.s there were i think 33 cases back in the let me find that article real quick Speaking of babies, we confirmed that Farley is pregnant. Yes, we did. I'm, like, really excited for Mare to find out. <laughs> oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, because that'll be her nephew. Because she doesn't know. Yep. And it's, like, a part of Shade, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, between... Okay, so in the U.S., there's admitted cases of targeted sterilization across 33 states of the United States from the 1930s to the 1980s. Whoa, that's so Like, late. that's how recently, Yeah. And I mean, you know, Nazi Germany did a ton of that kind of stuff. And but and it's also it's sad because in most cases it's targeted for women. It's not men who have forced sterilizations. It's women. And and that was a lot of uh, reading about other more humane ways to do population control with policy and stuff. A lot of it has to do with more education and more equality across genders um, Mm -hmm. because like women who are have an opportunity to work and do other things are less likely to be in a situation where their their only option is to be a wife and give birth to lots of kids oh, and stuff okay. like that. Um, and and just enjoy, like a lot of problems in the world. So overpopulation is a bigger issue in like poorer countries that are less developed. And there's stronger ties to like if we decrease poverty and increase opportunity and increase education mm-hmm. and all these other things, it has a natural impact on fertility rates. People having yeah. fewer children and having children later in life. Yeah. And and even things like what we were seeing with China and the gender ratio because people didn't want girls. Yeah. Yeah, you could see how gender equality would come into play a lot. Yep. So, I mean, it was kind of interesting, and it was interesting to see both sides of the of the coin, and it almost makes you think we should be promoting in some of these countries more adoption of, or, so, you know, like, let's babies, adopt from the yeah. countries with overpopulation into the countries with underpopulation instead of telling some countries to start having more babies when we yeah. already have a problem, but, um, but it was kind of scary to think about, and we're either going to run into a major issue or have to have some changes in how we handle resources or the population going forward. So, it, I mean, it it's sad and the way they handle it in this book is obviously terrible but population overgrowth is like a it's a really bad thing and it's terrifying Mm -hmm. and i wonder especially with the silvers being able to heal people like i'm sure they have all kinds of their own issues in this 
in this world that we're living in in the book. Well, I think it was more just like the red population. They were just worried that the red population would get too big and overthrow the silvers. I don't even know if it was over. I think that's what it is. I don't know if it was like there's too many people in general. I think it's just they didn't want the numbers of red people to exceed silvers um, to the point where they could revolt. That could be true. But I do think it's the rate that the reds are being killed off, obviously... Any population trouble they're having, they're just focusing it on the red group. Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah. And I'm curious to see more about these other countries, too. Piedmont, yeah. the Lakelands. Well, we get a map in the beginning of the book, which makes me think, like, we will be expanding into these other countries. Yeah. The first two didn't have maps. And it looks kind of U.S.-like, doesn't it? A little bit, yeah. We've got, like, the, the Great Lakes in the top. Uh-huh. Right, kind of. <laughs> So, anyways, that was my kind of random research on population control, and both freaked me out, and was kind of interesting. And yeah, um, well, my research could have been dark, but I tried to make it a little bit light. Um, so I was interested in the scene where Cal invades Corvium. Yep. The country that's like a fortress, essentially, and everyone's like, "This is a suicide mission. You'll never get in." But I guess Shade had intelligence on how to break in. And so they launched an attack on Corvium. And the issue was that right before they attacked, the Silver Guards rounded up all of the 15-year-old conscripted soldiers, Mm -hmm. like the really young ones, and was holding them hostage in the center of the fortress, essentially. Yep, including Cameron's twin brother. Right, Maury. And so... I was reading about, like, how these youngest soldiers are being hostage, and then, I mean, we have that really interesting scene where Mare and Farley and Herrick go to steal the hostages back, and um, Herrick has, like, is creating all those illusions of invisibility to get them out, Um, and it was just a really cool scene because I think we see, like you said, we do see that the situation's not as black and white as it should be, like, the Silvers are injured too, and Cameron almost finds herself... Um, feeling sympathy for them because some of them are so injured and like you know at the end of the day they're all human yep and it was similar to when maven gets shot and mare has this like she's torn between the decision of like she wants to help him but she also wants to go finish the job and kill him so it's like we see we see these two instances where it's like you see the people who are your enemy but when they're dying it's hard not to feel sympathy for them yeah and mare had a similar kind of realization when she was first in the castle in the first book too because she thought she hated all silvers and then ends up you know forming friendships and relationships with some of them who aren't all bad yeah so i um researched hostage situations okay (laughs) um i mean obviously this could have gone really dark but i tried to find situations where the hostages actually talked their way out of their captors hands okay like opposite of Stockholm Syndrome kind of thing? Yeah. Okay. It's examples where like hostages talk their way free. Okay. So the first one, um, this one surprised me. I didn't, I did not know anything about this. Apparently, um, Benedict Cumberbatch was kidnapped in 2005. Really? Yeah. Like Sherlock. It actually made me laugh because what he does is like such a Sherlock thing to get free. So he was in South Africa filming um, the TV miniseries To the Ends of the Earth. And he and his friends were driving back home when their tire blew out. So to get their spare tire, they had to take all their luggage out of the trunk and pile it on the side of the road, which is really dangerous because basically, like, that's sending out a red flag to anyone passing by. Like, hey, we're in trouble and we have all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So 
there were some criminals who came running, and there was a gang of six men who held the group at gunpoint, and they demanded all their money, um, any weapons, and any drugs they had. And they basically were just like, look, we just have this money, a little bit of money. We don't have hardly anything. We don't have any of Um, our drugs with us. Yeah. (laughs) It says, and and no deadly weapons besides those chiseled cheekbones. (laughs) Um, Love it. So they were tied up in the back of a car and driven away. And I guess Benedict Cumberbatch complained that being tied up was interfering with his circulation. So they pulled over and they took him out and they put him in the trunk which is just horrific. Yeah. So then they pulled over again, and he sat up and he started listing off um, brain and heart problems that he said he had, which he didn't, but he was like, he was like, listen, if you keep me in here, I'll die. It's a closed space. I'm going to have a fit, and then you'll have a dead Englishman in your car, and it'll be a big problem for you. Yeah. And they were like, ah, okay, you're right. So they just took him out, and they tied them up with their shoelaces and just left them on the side of the road. Because he managed to convince them that having a dead Englishman in the back of his car would create more problems for them. I mean, so he talked his way out. To be fair, that's probably true. So, yeah, but good job, Benedict. But, like, how terrifying is that? I feel, I read that and I was just like, oh my God, that is, that's just such a traumatic thing to have happen. Yeah. And I was surprised because I had not heard anything about it. I know. I haven't heard anything about that either. And it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of crazy. I can't even imagine what I would do in that situation. I feel like I wouldn't even be able to think clearly enough to, like, even think about how to talk myself out of something. Oh, my God. I would just, I would just be panicking. I'd be, like, crying in the back, like. Yeah. <laughs> this is it. Um, okay, so then there was the case of 19-year-old Matthew Scott in 2003. He is English, and he was with a group of 15 backpackers hiking in the Sierra Nevada. Uh, and... The basically the NLA showed up claiming to be people who were gonna lead them to a safer path. They were just like, Oh, hey, we know a shortcut, come with us. So they took eight of the tourists, including this, this uh, man, Matthew Scott, and they just started walking with them. And then at one point, they, he realized, like, Oh shit, we are being kidnapped. Like, we are not going on a hike, we are being kidnapped. And what so, what were the other tourists doing? They left them behind because they didn't have sturdy walking shoes, or and they seemed physically unfit. So what were those guys thinking? Just like... I have no idea. Okay, we'll just take the long route? <laughs> I guess. Um, okay. And so when he realized they were being kidnapped, they started taking up, them up this really narrow path on the side of the mountain, and it began to rain, like, really, really hard. And so... This is nuts. He took advantage of the downpour to run away, and he slid down a preface a precipice and jumped off the cliff into the river below. Wow. Yeah. So he escaped essentially by jumping off a cliff and he was carried by the current for a while and then he washed ashore and he was alone in the middle of the Colombian jungle and he wandered by himself for 12 days and he survived on water and willpower is what it says. And then finally, he met a group of local people who gave him food and um, sent for help. Did they ever find the other tourists? Yeah, it says the other backpackers were released three months later. Wow. It doesn't say what happened to them, though. Three months is a long time. To be held hostage? Yeah. I mean, I know people are kidnapped for years and years, too, but three months is not like a... I mean, no amount of time is good, but yeah, three months is not insignificant. Wow. So I guess he would say that was worth it. But think of all the risks involved. He got pretty lucky still. Yeah. He's lucky he didn't die when he jumped off a cliff. 
Or while wandering aimlessly through the desert with no, I mean, the jungle with no food. Oh, okay. So the last case is, um... I don't know if I learned a lesson there or not. Don't follow strange people. If I were in that situation... Stick to your group. Okay, well, yeah. From the very beginning. Stick to the trail, stick to the group. (laughs) Don't go hiking with strangers. Don't go hiking at all. Wear bad shoes so no kidnappers Wear inappropriate footwear for hiking. And do everything you can to appear physically unfit. (laughs) Uh, Done and done. (laughs) Okay, so in this last (laughs) example, um, in 2007, there was a commercial flight from Northern Africa to the Canary Islands, and the flight was hijacked by a man who barged into the cockpit with two handguns, and he was going, his plan was to to take the plane to France, where he planned to request political asylum. Okay. But, here's the thing, so... The the crew informed the pilot that they didn't have enough fuel to get to France, like the hijacker wanted, which is a pretty big problem, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> but as the pilot was trying to explain to the hijacker that they physically could not get to France, he realized that the guy didn't speak any French. The hijacker did not speak a word of French. Uh-huh. And so the pilot, this brilliant pilot he um took the pa system and calmly informed all of the passengers on the plane that they'd be making a rough landing and he said as soon as i land i'm gonna purposely make this landing rough to knock the hijacker off his feet as soon as they land please feel free to come into the cockpit and beat the shit out of this hijacker (laughs) and he was saying all this in french and the guy had no idea so basically he in the hijacker. It was kind of like in um, Life is Beautiful. Whenever the um, two Nazi sh- soldiers ask if anyone can speak German, and Roberto Benigni raises his hand. Oh and he's yeah, just, yeah, like, yeah. Saying this crazy stuff and like pretending like he understands German. That's basically what happened. And the hijacker just assumed that he was relaying information to the <laughs> crew of passengers. Um, and so the pilot. He landed this plane. Oh, they, they took the women and children to move to the seats in the back so that the people who could deal the most damage were closer to the front. <laughs> and the pilot landed the plane. He slammed on the brakes and then sped up, causing the hijacker to fall down and drop his weapons. And then 10 passengers rushed in and just took him down. Wow. Oh, and then, the, oh my God. Oh, this Okay. And then the crew members poured boiling hot water over his body. That seems like a little much, but... But, I mean, how scary would that be? I would do what I they could. They took I mean, down, like, and... I would, if, if I wasn't physically able to... Yeah, yeah, I guess they thought their lives were at stake. Um, and then the hijacker was handed over to Spanish authorities. So wait, where were they going from again? They were going from Northern Africa to the Canary Islands. But so enough people spoke French on the plane, though, that... Yes. Okay. And this guy just wanted to go to France because... For political asylum, I guess. And the food or something. I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and all the culture that's, and art, you know. That's crazy, though, that he didn't speak. Or, that's so crazy. funny. That's brilliant. I mean, it could have been terrifying, but at, at least it ended well. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, so it reminds me of this hostage scene in the book. And now we have Maury, which I thought this was interesting, too. So in the this book, there was more propaganda, like we talked about yesterday or last week. Yep where Maven forces Mayor to announce to everyone that the Scarlet Guard is killing New Bloods, and they're opening the palace to be a refuge for New Bloods to recruit them for the Silver Army. And so it was really interesting when we meet Maury, and he's totally bought into this brainwashing where he thinks the Scarlet Guard is killing New Bloods, and he's, like, disgusted with his sister that she's part of them. 
So that's a whole interesting piece that I hope we see more about, like this, do the new bloods trust the Scarlet Guard or will they start coming to the Silvers for quote-unquote refuge? And I want to see how Maven uses the new bloods that have come for refuge if if it's new blood versus new blood eventually or anything. I mean, there's a lot at stake here, but I'm also, I don't know how much I trust the Scarlet Guard. We still don't really know what the command motive is. Yeah, that's a good point. And and the colonel is just a piece of work. The colonel is a piece of work. Farley kind of does her own thing. And at some point that might, I mean, like, I trust Farley, but I don't, she's not even doing everything the Scarlet Guard is. Like, you know, she's kind of a lone agent a little bit who lines up with what yeah. she's been told for the most part, but not always. And so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out because I don't know that the Scarlet Guard is as good as we think they are either. I don't. I know Maven was telling lies about them, but that doesn't mean that the Scarlet Guard mm-hmm. is necessarily the good guy either. So I agree. I'm kind of nervous about what they are trying to do really and if it's something different than what we've been told. And I, I'm loving having these two perspectives. I actually really like getting Cameron's perspective because we didn't really yeah. know her that well at the beginning, but she still also kind of reminds me a lot of Mare, but but is also really different. I don't know how to... I yeah, think she she's, does. she's kind of a fun perspective to get and mm-hmm. and to know enough about what the Scarlet Guard is doing, but it's not half and half either, which I think is good. <laughs> right, right. And I like how she doesn't really... She's kind of like Farley where she doesn't take orders very well. Like, she really just wants to do what works best for her, whatever it works best for her. Um, But I like that she has that kind of spirit, and it's making the Scarlet Guard sections definitely more tolerable for me. Well, and she hasn't even sworn allegiance to the Scarlet Guard. I know, because she was force conscripted. (laughs) Which is like, I hated when Mare did that, when she didn't give her a choice about whether to join, because I was just like... This whole thing started because you were force conscripted and Killorn was force conscripted and now you're doing the same thing to Cameron. I didn't like that. I didn't like it either, but I like that she recognized it in herself. Like, it, it wasn't yeah. like she just did it and didn't. Like, she was, she felt guilty about it. She was affected And she it. knew that she was doing a bad thing. So at least, I mean, you know. And I'm curious to see now John's escaped again. I still don't know what his <laughs> goal is in life, but... Um, he just likes to yeah. run away. Or he, he likes to get certain things in motion, but... I think he ran away because he saw the coup d'etat happening, or, or he saw that it was coming, and he didn't say anything. So that makes me wonder, like, are you really on the side of Maven and the Crown, or are you on the side of the Scarlet Guard? Like, I really don't know. I think, again, he's another one of those people who's on his own side, but I don't know who he wants to help. Like, what yeah. version of the future... Because maybe... It, was a necessary evil to have I mean like maybe he thought it was better for her to be captured and whatever whatever yeah because we don't know what the alternative was it it kind of reminds me again of the carve the mark mom oh yeah you know just I just I don't really trust him I'm kind of glad he's gone but I'm kind of curious when he'll show up again because he's not gone gone (laughs) maybe he thought that it would be better for Mare to be infiltrating the crown rather than working on the outside yeah because she is like or maybe this brought about the end of the war which it technically did. Yeah. Yeah. I did like that scene where, um, like, if I had to pick a second favorite scene, it would be when Mare floods her bathroom and then knocks the chandelier over. Mm-hmm. And it makes it made me think of you because at the very beginning of this series, you were like, I like the superpowers, but I want to see them get out of a situation without relying on their powers. And that totally happened because she was, like, surrounded by all this silent stone. 
And then she knocks her chandelier into the water and, like, basically electrifies the water without using her electric power, which I thought was really cool. I know. I love that it was elect- It was still yeah. using electricity, even though it wasn't her power. And I loved that she used her pit pocket skills, which is what I was referring to in the first place when I was talking about that. Mm-hmm. Like, she kept nicking things, even um, a badge off Maven's jacket. Right. Or a, a metal or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and when she was breaking all those glasses and stuff, I thought it was interesting <laughs> that she was saving shards of them. Yeah. Like, I didn't see that coming. Um, so I agree. I like when she... She's being more resourceful, and she's learning to do things without yeah. her superpower, which I think is great. And she keeps she keeps getting out of her chains, too. They just keep bending yeah. her and putting her back in. <laughs> Part of me is like, if she can pit pocket those with something, I feel like you guys should do, change them up a little bit again, but I guess it's working. Well, they, yeah. Well, I guess they did. They moved her to that, like, more intense cell. But I liked that um, she was at least able to get that message out to that boy when she, right before she made the announcement about the new bloods. And yep. she was like, this is a trick. Tell everyone. <laughs> well, and I'm curious how much the houses turning on maven had to do with her getting enough information out about the jail right yeah because i think it probably did but i don't know they could just like cal better and we're looking to mix things up i don't know yeah it's just interesting because i don't know if cal would make a better king like i don't think he would have tried to shake the system like he would have just kept doing everything the way his father did i think yeah cal if he had naturally become king would there we still would have had the scarlet guard doing their thing and possibly mayor could have had more of an influence at some point but i agree i don't think he i don't think he's the answer or at least he wouldn't have i mean it wouldn't have been all fine and dandy if maven hadn't taken over but that doesn't mean that cal after all this experience wouldn't be a better king yeah but i don't really know who should be king I think Mare should be king. Maybe there shouldn't be a king. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay, well, I'm really excited to keep reading, so. Me too. Yeah, I'm definitely into this this book again, more so than the last one. Me too. But I didn't hate the last one. And either. we do have to start thinking of a fan name, because mm. we only have three episodes left on this book, and sometimes we run into trouble when we wait to the very end. <laughs> That's a good point. Yes, I will start thinking. No, no promises, though. <laughs> Okay. Nothing's coming to mind immediately, so we'll see. I'll think about it more this week. Okay. Okay, I think it's my turn to tell you a joke. I think you're right. (laughs) I'm just on this page of, like, all these saved jokes that I have. (laughs) (laughs) Some of these are so funny. All right. A bike in town keeps running me over. It's a vicious cycle. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is interesting. What do you call a patronizing criminal going down a staircase? A patronizing... A con... Oh, you're getting it. I, I only guess con. I don't know the rest of it. A condescending con descending. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. These are good. I almost... I, I could have maybe gotten that if I had tried harder. <laughs> no, I don't think so. That's funny. I don't think we've ever guessed each other's jokes once. <laughs> nope. Okay, well, we're going to keep reading. And we're going to finish King's Cage for next week. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at mndktalkya at gmail.com. And we're also on Facebook and Instagram at mndktalkya. Yep. Send us jokes or thoughts or book suggestions or whatever. We love hearing from you. All right. Bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. 
M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.